In other words, Paul is saying here that the sound of the gospel has been vibrating around the world through the instrumentation of creation. Did you hear it? Did you see the lyrics of God in the sky and in his musical masterpiece of creation? This collection of voices, this grand gospel choir called creation. It's now performing. You go out there and it's playing. It plays day after day and night unto night. Can you hear it? What's the most beautiful thing you've ever encountered in nature? Where's the most beautiful place you've ever been? God designed his creation with purpose. When we look at it, we're supposed to marvel at it. It points to him. We're supposed to look at God's creation and realize that there's a wonderful creator. Today on Wisdom for the Heart, Stephen's going to explore this. We're looking at what the Apostle Paul taught concerning the lessons we learn from creation. We're in Romans 10 today, and Stephen called this message, Now Performing, the Original Gospel Choir. Has it ever occurred to you that when we sing together, we're joining in a practice that has been around since before time actually began. In fact, Job informs us that when God laid the cornerstone of the universe and the foundations of his creation, that the morning stars, a reference to the angels, sang together. Job 38, 6 to 7. This was the original gospel choir. If you can imagine the sounds of these, this created host before the worlds were created. God created them first as if it were to sing praise while the universe was being brought into being. What an amazing choir that must have been. A choir of millions of angels singing praise to God. Think, well, man, I would have loved to have been there, would have loved to have seen that, would have loved to have sung along. Well, Revelation informs us that at the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, this great host will again assemble and we will be with them. We will be singing praise to God in that great choir. So all we're doing here is tuning up, right? And some of us need more tuning than others, but we're just tuning up, getting ready for the great day. But we're singing here in praise and worship to God in view, of course, of what God is doing in our own lives. And music has a tremendous impact in our lives and can have a great impact in the church as well. Martin Luther, the reformer, once said that sacred music is the handmaiden of theology. Powerful statement. Sacred music is the handmaiden of theology. No wonder he wrote hymns for his congregation to sing, and we still sing some of them to this day. It's no surprise that a Jesuit priest would make this comment in the 16th century, complaining about the lingering effects of Martin Luther's Reformation within the church, and ultimately it led outside the church. His complaint is enlightening. He said this, and I quote, Luther has stolen away more people with his hymns than with all his sermons. Powerful statement. The power of music to soothe and to convict, to challenge to encourage, to bring about change in the believer is impossible to fully estimate. Even in the secular world, the power of music is very obvious. Have you ever watched a television commercial without music? One medical doctor was trying to help some of his patients and he came up with this conclusion. He said, half an hour of music 
produced in many of my patients the same effect as 10 milligrams of Valium. You see that truly, don't you? In 1 Samuel 16, David is brought in with his harp. Saul is depressed. He is discouraged. And David would play his harp and the text would say he would become refreshed and well and the distressing spirit would depart from Saul. So a question would be, are you troubled? Maybe this is a brief moment in your week where you seem to have your spirit lifted. Is it any coincidence that it would be related to music? Are you anxious throughout the week? Are you troubled? Are you distracted? Are you tempted? Why leave this here? It isn't intended to stay here. Who are your musical counselors? Who have you allowed into your life to motivate you and encourage you and determine your mood and your spirit? Power of sacred music is impossible to estimate. I wonder who you've allowed to move your soul throughout the week. I wonder who you listen to and what you listen to when you drive to work. What you listen to in your apartment. What you listen to as you're coming home from school. Who have you allowed to counsel your soul? I had a woman come up after one of the earlier hours and she said, you know what you're talking about, about music. That's so true. Something's been happening in my life and I wanted to tell you. And I asked her if I could insert it here. I won't tell her name, but she said, sure. She told me, she said, you know, I'd reached a point where in my Christian life, I didn't seem to be growing. In fact, I seemed to be going the other way. I was discouraged and distracted. And and I had a friend call me up and say, you know, I've noticed that things aren't right with you. Would you come over, could we get together? And she said, I didn't really want to go over because I knew I'd be held accountable and have to answer some questions as a young mother. She said, but I did go and my friend sat with me and talked with me and then said, you know, could I pray with you? And she said, I don't know, I guess, you know, I really don't feel anything and sense anything. And, and she said, well, I'll pray anyway. And so she prayed and, and then she said, after the prayer, she looked up at her and she said, you know, I don't know why, but God's spirit seems to be impressing me. Would you mind if I just sang? You don't have to sing. You just listen. And she said, I began to sing some of the old hymns. And this woman told me, she said it was unbelievable with tears coming down her cheeks. He said, God's spirit just sort of re-grabbed my heart. And then I began to think about what I've allowed with music that so profoundly affected me. What I've allowed into my life over these last months and years. And she said, I went, I went home, I gathered all of my secular CDs and the pop stuff and all of that. I gathered it all together, had a yard sale, and I gave it all away. She said, I'm committed now to sacred music like never before. Challenge you to reconsider who are you allowing to counsel your soul throughout the course of the week. It is a handmaiden to theology. Does your music match your theology. We often ask each other, you know, how's your prayer life? That's a good question. How's your Bible study life? That's a great question. We don't ask one another, how's your music life this week? How's your music? Huh? Well, that's sort of over there. No, it's not. It profoundly affects our lives more than we could ever imagine. A.W. Tozer once wrote, I say without qualification, after the sacred scriptures, the next best companion for the soul is sacred music. Sometimes our hearts are strangely stubborn and will not soften or grow tender no matter how much praying we do. At such times it is often found that the reading or singing of a hymn will melt the ice jam and start the inward affections flowing again. That's so good. Whose idea was music to begin with? 
It was created before man was created. It's not man's idea, it's God's idea. Warren Wearsby pointed out that each member of the triune God sings. God the Father sings. Zephaniah 3.17, where the prophet Zephaniah wrote these words, The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with singing. He's in your midst and he's rejoicing over you with singing. Can you imagine this morning? He was singing along. God the Son sings. We know that in the upper room, they had that meal and in a few hours the Lord will be crucified. And before they departed, what did they do? They sang a hymn. Can you imagine God the Son leading in the singing of a hymn? God the Spirit sings through us, Paul writes to the Ephesians, to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're going to sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. Music is not the idea of man. Music is the idea of God. Bring God into your music. Bring godly music into your life. God was the first lyricist. He was the first composer. You could even say it this way. He was the first choir director. He was the first. He was the original composer of gospel music. And you're saying, now what does this have to do with Romans chapter 10? You're so cynical. (laughs) Well, turn to Romans chapter 10 and I'll show you. What I found fascinating is that the Apostle Paul summarizes his argument about the lost condition of not only the Jews, but the whole world by quoting gospel music. As it were... This great Jewish attorney pulls out two songs from the way distant past. Two songs out of Israel's life. And he brings them in to use as testimonies that the unbelieving world is responsible for their unbelief. Now before we dive in and we're at about verse 18 here, 19. You've studied this letter long enough with me to know that Paul often anticipated the objections of his readers, didn't he? And so what he would do is he would just spell out their objection and then he would just answer it. He does the same thing here. Let's back up to verse 16 and get a running start. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So in summary, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, here's the objection, surely they have never heard, have they? They've never heard. That would be the objection. And Paul anticipates it, so he just says it. But the truth is the Jewish people have heard the gospel. They heard it from Moses. They heard it from Abraham. They heard it through the prophets. They heard it from the Lord himself. They heard it through Stephen. They heard it through the apostles. And the reaction was always the same. They rejected it. Some did believe. But it's as if Paul here says, well, you know, that's a good objection. And so what I want to do is I'm going to answer that objection by playing you a song right out of your hymnal. It's on page number 19 and it goes like this. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line or their voice, has gone out through the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Sound familiar? That's the point that Paul uses right here in Romans chapter 10. He quotes that line out of that third or fourth stanza. Their voice went out into all the earth. Did you remember that song? The word translated voice 
In Romans 10 is a rare Greek word. It's a word that was created to sound like that which it was describing. Thong, thong. It's a word that describes the strumming of a string. Thong. And the vibration of that sound. It's a word that only appears two times. The other one is in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul talks about the sound of a flute or a harp. In other words, Paul is saying here that the sound of the gospel has been vibrating around the world through the instrumentation of creation. Did you hear it? Did you see the lyrics of God in the sky and in his universe? By quoting David, though, Paul is actually expanding the application of David's psalm beyond the Jewish people and beyond the Roman Empire. In fact, everybody we learn from Romans is exposed to the creator's musical masterpiece of creation. This collection of voices, this grand gospel choir called creation. It's now performing. You go out there and it's playing. It plays day after day and night unto night. Can you hear it? Do you see it? You add to that general revelation of creation, the special revelation of the scripture and the rapid progress of the gospel, even as Paul is writing throughout that known world in the first century was amazing. Tertullian would say, we are of yesterday, but we have already filled your cities. We've filled your islands. We've filled your camps. We've filled your palaces. We have only left alone your temple. Justin Martyr, in the middle of the second century, wrote, There is no people, Greek or barbarian, or of any other race, by whatever appellation or manners they may be distinguished, however ignorant of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus. You say, we saw the statistics in the 21st century. There are roughly one and a half billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. That's true. There are four and a half billion who have, and more importantly for you today, you're one of them. What are you doing about it? Have you adopted the lyrics of these for yourself? Is this your music too? And even those who've never heard the name of Christ will stand guilty and without excuse before the Lord because they were given the music of creation or general revelation. Turn back to chapter 1 in Romans very quickly and look at verse 20 again. He writes, for since the creation of the world, that is since this vibration began, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, poetically crafted, so that they are without what? excuse. They've seen it. And what do they do? They've decided to ignore it or speculate about it. In fact, that's what he says in verse 21. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile and their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Instead of saying, wow, look at creation. There must be a creator. They say, wow, we'll worship that tree. We'll worship the river. We'll worship Mother Nature, maybe Earth itself, in some way, created all there is. Rather than worshiping God, they professed to be wise, verse 22, but they became fools. They were given the praise of nature. They were given the praise of creation. They were given the order and symmetry and the masterpiece of all there is. And they have said, we will choose not to give glory to a creator God. So Paul, 
takes the lyrics of David's old gospel hymn and counters the objection by saying, well, you can't say you haven't heard. You can't say you didn't read the lyrics. The vibration of the created order, like the sound of a string that's been plucked, reverberates around the world. And today, when you tell people about the gospel, and the gospel involves the story of a creator, what do they say? Well, you mean you really believe that? You believe that? What boat did you fall off? And yet Colossians 1 tells us, for by him, that is Christ, the second person of the deity who is actually the agent of creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You mean you actually believe that? You share with people and you'll discover that the responses will be just what Jesus Christ said they would be. Four different kinds of people will receive the gospel Matthew 13 tells us, let me give them to you very quickly. First of all, there are the defiant ones. They're the hardened people, the seed of the gospel. Beyond the exposure of creation to their hearts, their hearts are hard. They're like a beaten down path and the seed never gets through. You know the people that you say something about Jesus or the gospel to at work or at school and they'll say, I don't want to hear it. There are the disillusioned. Secondly, they seem to receive the gospel until persecution arises and then they abandon what they said they believed. There are third, the deviant. These are the ones that say they believe and the gospel seems to penetrate, seems to bring about some form of life until prosperity occurs. Not persecution, but for them prosperity. And it grows up in their lives and like thorns, it chokes off what seemed to be life. And they walk away from any desire for the one true and living God and they pursue their other gods. They buy Babylon. They choose things, people, and all those other things that they find as idols. Then you have not only defiant and disillusioned and deviant, but you do have the disciple. This is the one who who receives the word, embraces it. And somewhere prior to perhaps even hearing the word, they saw creation and God worked in their hearts to where they said, you know, there's got to be something else. There's got to be more. Now in Romans chapter 9, Paul has spelled out the doctrine of election and you're left with the truth of God's sovereignty. Then you get to Romans chapter 10 and Paul spells out human accountability to believe. And he never seems to try and even reconcile these two thoughts. And he tells us though in Romans chapter 10 that mankind will stand accountable before God for their unbelief. No one will ever stand before God and say, well, I wasn't elect, you can't send me to hell. No, every person will stand before their creator and God will say, I gave you the music, I showed you the lyrics and what did you do? And they'll all say, we disbelieved. We didn't believe. We heard the music and we rejected it. We chose to worship the sun, the moon, some tree. We chose to worship ourselves. But as for you today, the message is simple. Hear the music. Listen to the gospel choir of God's creation. Join the choir. Sign up. Sign up and sing along. That's the invitation. Paul says they heard. Whether they say they didn't or whether they say they can't, they heard. It's the universal vibration of God's masterpiece called creation. I remember reading a funny story of an older man who was very concerned about his wife's hearing. He went to his trusted doctor and he asked for advice. He said, I know she's not going to come in to see you, but I'm really troubled because she doesn't seem to be responding sometimes when I talk to her. So the doctor said, well, let's experiment. Why don't you go home and try to talk to her where, you know, maybe she can't see you or whatever, and let's find out how bad it is. And so he said, okay. So he went home and when he walked in, 
kitchen, she was at the sink with her back to him. And so he stood at the door and he, in a normal voice, said, what's for supper? No response. So he stepped a little closer and he said a little louder, what's for supper? No response. He got right behind her and he said very loudly, what's for supper? And she wheeled around and she said, for the third time, we're having soup. So they say, okay, okay, okay. All right. We got the music part. Now the objection would be, but we don't understand it. And that would be what they object with next, verse 19. But I say, here's the next objection. Surely Israel did not know. They didn't understand, did they? And once again, Paul says, well, I'm going to answer that question by playing you another gospel song. This really goes Quite a ways back, it was written and sung by Moses. Would have loved to have heard Moses sing. He says in verse 19, again, look there, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding, will I anger you. Now that doesn't sound much like a song to me. What kind of lyrics are those? Well, Moses actually sang this, composing it, singing it after the commissioning of Joshua. He's going to die very shortly. And he, in this song that's recorded in Deuteronomy 32, is just recounting the history of Israel. And he's recounting God's providence and he's recounting God's power. And and then he says some prophetic things in that song, inspired by God. He says, there will come a day, Israel, when you will be jealous and angry by those who are not a nation believing in God. It's part of his lyrics. You're going to be angry that they believe. And Isaiah sort of goes along with his song. So he quotes him in verse 20 of Romans 10. Look there. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. God is being quoted here. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And that's interesting. The Jews were exclusively the people of God. They were the people of the law. They were the people of prayer. They had God in their corner only. But now we discover the gospel's gone to the rest of the world. That means a few billion Gentiles. And we thought God belonged to us. And they became angry and jealous. Now, wait a second. I thought the objection here in verse 19 was that Israel didn't understand the gospel. How does the fact that Israel is jealous of Gentiles answer the objection that they didn't understand? Well, let me put it to you this way. If the Jew had not understood the gospel... He wouldn't have cared any bit whether or not the Gentiles believed or not. If he didn't believe that they were literally getting a message from God, they wouldn't have cared. Angry? Jealous? Who cares? Let them believe what they want to believe. But the jealousy and the anger indicated that they understood very well what was happening. They knew that the message was coming from God and it was a different message. It was a message of grace. It had nothing to do with them keeping their laws and their regulations. It was not a fulfillment of Judaism. It was not an extension of Judaism. It was in contradiction to Judaism. We don't like that fact that God would deliver to them a message of grace. And so they became very angry. And guess what? Moses had sung about it. Their emotion revealed their understanding. They knew full well what it meant. By the way, that is encouraging to those of you who share your faith. You go out into the world and you might write off somebody that responds with vitriolic anger, you know? You share the gospel and they say, I don't want to hear that. I don't believe that. God belongs to you, not to me. I don't care about God. I don't want to hear anything about God. You know something? That guy might be really close to salvation because he's so angry. It's penetrating. There is ignorance, though, that would be 
inexcusable to God. Let me categorize them in two different statements. God would hold mankind responsible for these forms of quote-unquote ignorance. There is an ignorance, number one, that comes from neglecting knowledge. You neglected to read the fine print on that contract. It was at the bottom. You remember on page 73 and you didn't read it, but you signed the contract. Are you responsible and accountable to the fine print? You are. Oh, I didn't read it. Well, you could have. You're responsible for knowledge you could have had because it was available. It is inexcusable when ignorance comes from simply neglecting knowledge that was available. Secondly, Another form of inexcusable ignorance is ignorance which comes from willful blindness. We call that turning a blind eye. I'll date myself with this illustration, but I remember watching as a kid Hogan's Heroes. You remember any of you? That was before they were reruns and black and white was it. And they had that guard named Schultz. I got a bunch of old people in here with me. I can tell by just the humming. And, and, and Schultz would see one of them coming out of a tunnel or, you know, doing some kind of sabotage there. And they'd slip him some food and he'd eat the food and he would say his famous line, I see nothing. I know nothing. Oh boy, you, <laughs> you guys got it down. I see nothing and the world does that. Oh, I don't see creation. You know, I enjoy a little bit of it, but I don't see it. I don't hear the gospel No, I've got my hands firmly over my ears. I don't hear it. That's inexcusable because it is willful blindness. Paul just pulls out a hymn here to the nation and beyond that's sung by Moses. And he says, you know what? You're accountable. And your anger and your bitterness prove that you understood all along. Let me make one closing comment and challenge that comes out of this. Number one, here's the statement and then I'll give you the first and last challenge. The music of the gospel points to a divine conductor. The music of the gospel points to this divine conductor. Their voice is heard around the universe, which would point us to a conductor, a composer. So here's the challenge. Worship him. There's nothing less that we can do than that. Obey him. Worship him. Follow him. We're part of this grand scheme, and one day we're going to see them, and oh my, let's tune it up now, let's sign on, and let's sing along. We who have accepted the seed of the gospel and have joined the choir, we say, our God is great. Tune it up. And we surround ourselves with music that is sacred and glorifying unto him, that raises our affections toward him and points our eyes toward him because we're being tuned up for the great day when with unfettered souls and unhindered natures we sing glory to God like we have never sung before. So sing it out. I hope that this challenge from God's Word has encouraged you today. You're listening to Wisdom for the Heart, the Bible teaching ministry of Stephen Davey. We're thankful that you took the time to join us. If you've never taken the time to introduce yourself to us, please do that today. You can call us today at 866-48-BIBLE. We have a magazine that we publish. Stephen deals with a different topic each month to help you better understand what the Bible says 
and how it applies directly to your life. For example, some of the past topics have included things such as why God allowed evil in the world, how to forge friendships, what we can know about angels, and more. We're going to send you the next three issues as our gift. Just call us today at 866-48-BIBLE and we'll get you signed up. Join us back here next time for more Wisdom for the Hearts. 